Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Digital Reflections podcast. We're featuring the recent webinar, How Can We Use Data and Technology to Make Our Places and Cities Smart? Brought to you from Smart Cities World in association with IOTICS. Now we're over to Luke to introduce the panellists. Hello everybody, Uh, welcome along to this uh, Smart Cities World webinar, which is brought to you today in association with IOTICS. Uh, I'm Luke Antonio, Senior Editor here at Smart Cities World. I'll be your host, your moderator for the next uh, yeah, for the next hour or so. So welcome along. Um, in today's session, uh, as you'll have gathered from our, our title up on screen, we're going to be going in depth on how we can use data and technology to create and develop smarter cities and smarter places as well. And I suppose when we say smart places, what we're really looking at is all of these places in our cities and, and beyond, like airports, stadia, ports, railway stations, um, which act a bit like cities yeah, in a way without necessarily being owned or operated by, by local government or, or those sorts of related agencies. And data is really the key part to how we connect these places and drive forward towards better services and experiences for, for the public. Um, and to discuss these points, I'm joined by uh, by three experts today, who I think should be joining me on camera any second now. Um, and together with them, uh, we'll dive into the conversation and see how we can achieve that through uh, right time data delivery, data sharing, and, and closer collaboration between data owners as well. Um, Melissa, I will hand over to you first to introduce yourself. Welcome along. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Um, yeah, so um, I'm head of programmes for the infrastructure client group, um, and that's made up of about 20 of the leading economic infrastructure clients in the UK. Um, and basically, the easiest way to describe it is to say it's like a homework sharing club. Um, and basically, it's where they get together to share their best practice, but also their barriers and their own mistakes. Um, and, uh, and then I'm also, um, with another hat, I'm co-chair of the Digital Twin Hub Community Council. Um, and I also sit on the Construction Leadership Council Task Force, um, and I'm involved in various other initiatives with things like the World Economic Forum and Global Infrastructure Hub and United Nations, sort of at a global level. Marvellous. Thank you very much. I think it's fair to say you keep fairly busy. Uh, Molly, we'll come to you next. Thanks, Luke, and thanks all for hosting. Um, so great to be joining this panel. I'm Molly Blatchley-Lewis, Europe Lead for Cities, Transport and Infrastructure at Accenture. Um, so our organisation is a professional services firm that covers the whole spectrum of technology and consulting and operations activities. My personal focus is very much on strategy and innovation with a real focus on sustainability. I'm Vice Chair of the Tech UK Climate Council um, and I've spent um, 18 months or so working with the World Economic Forum on a programme called Net Zero Carbon Cities. So looking forward to a rich discussion. Marvellous. And last but not least, over to you, Ali. Well, you say that, Luke. Uh, having heard those CVs, <laughs> there, there may be a degree of, of least, and I certainly wear, wear fewer hats. Um, but I'm Ali Nicol. I'm part of the founding team at IOTICS. Um, IOTICS enable the secure selective sharing of data across boundaries, um, which may well be a bit of a theme for me. Uh, as we look at how we can achieve uh, smarter cities uh, with data and technology. Um, so delighted to be here. Excellent stuff. And uh, don't put yourself down like that. We'll have none of it here. <laughs> um, so, well, welcome along, everybody. Um, thanks a lot for, for joining us. It's obviously fantastic to have you with us. Um, 
before we jump into the conversation proper, um, our usual reminder to our audience who are joining us live for this session to send in your questions and use the chat box as much as you as much as you can really we want this to be a really open interactive session uh between you between our panelists here as well so make sure that you're using that chat box respond to what you hear um challenge us if you hear something that maybe doesn't quite line up with your expectations or your thoughts um, and use that question and answer box as well at the bottom of the Zoom platform to submit any questions that you might have that we, we might be able to answer as we go. Um, we will, as always, look to answer as many as we can in the next, we're already down to 56 minutes, so we better get a, better get a shift on. Um, so without any, any further ado, um, let's, let's jump in. Um, and the first thing on our agenda today is um, how important it is to have secure and accessible data reaching decision makers in the right way and at the right time to enable them to make then the right decisions. And I suppose when we consider smart places within smart cities um, and the potential knock-on effect of getting wrong, any one of those sorts of myriad decisions across so many different verticals, you know, how important is it that that data is reaching those key operational decision makers at the right time to enable them to do the things that they need to do and keep these places and these networks running as they should. I'm just going to throw that open and see where we land. So if I may, um, just to, to jump in at the start on that with, with the kind of, um, just to set, set the scene that is it getting there? The answer is no. Uh, in my opinion, it's not getting to people. Um, and that's a combination of factors. Um, yeah, we know across most sectors and most industries, and especially in this area, um, that there's a lot of, of revelations around it taking over 50% of knowledge workers time to find data, then to work out whether it's the right data. A lot of data is being captured. I mean, I think we've been on a journey over the last six or seven years with things like IoT. Great, more continuous monitoring is happening something like less than 7% of that data is ever used or even looked at. So great, we're monitoring stuff. Is that data getting to the hands of the people that can do stuff about it, that can enchant our systems? Uh, no. Um, our smart places are beset by economic, environment, social challenges. Um, are they being met? Um, I would suggest no, uh, not, not just at a UK level, but, but government-wide. So. And I think that I, I know that both of my co-panelists have been involved in, in different reports that have also highlighted this, you know, that the, the data just is not getting there and it needs to. And, you know, if we are gonna have any chance of responding to the sorts of challenges we're seeing in our communities, in our cities, in our smart places, um, we absolutely need to have the data and technology at hand to, to be able to respond. Yeah, absolutely. Melissa, that's plenty of nodding. Uh, let's let's come to you on this one. Oh well, yeah, because uh, um, we did actually reference uh, the, the report, which I'm obviously going to refer to because uh, I, I um, what's great about uh, for us now is that we actually have some statistics to back it up. So we've been saying these things and now um, we, we can sort of say, no, look, the data, the statistics show it. Um, so um, the ICG has a digital transformation task group and it just published um, its digital benchmarking report. And, um, and it does, it's been doing this now for four years. Um, so this year felt like um, a really substantial year, you know, when you're sort of starting out and et cetera, et cetera. 
this year we had the kind of the widest um, input, so, so we really feel like we can rely on results. And um, it showed two gaps. And uh, one of the gaps is uh, exactly what I just said there. It was that there's been an increase in data availability and a statistic for that. And then in sense making and decision making, there's been a de decrease. Um, and then there's also been um, sort of an increase in, in silos and operating models. Um, so basically what it seems to be showing is that we have now got an increase in data, but it's not going through to the decision makers to make those decisions. And what we think is that the sort of the answer in the middle um, is um, for organisations, this is now so for like the clients, it's like common data environments and digital operating models, um, which is quite good to have statistics because people sort of switch off at that point. They don't really care, boards maybe don't want to hear that. It's not, it's not particularly sexy to hear that. Um, and that also reflects the journey that the ICG has been on, actually with, I would say, digital twins, but probably with all side physical infrastructure, um, is that beginning they weren't using the term digital twins, then they started to realise that actually the answer to everything is, is digital twins and particularly connecting them. But now they've come to the point of realising that actually what's underneath digital twins is quality interoperable data and that underpins them. And again, that's not very sexy or understood. So trying to, to talk to boards to unlock investment uh, for uh, you know, quality interoperable data and for common data environments and uh, digital operating models is difficult. So the other gap that was identified in that study um, is the gap between the board starting to get it and actually unlocking the investment that's needed. Um, so yeah, so uh, we're, we're really pleased that we can sort of back up what Ali just said there. <laughs> now we, we, hope that we can go to the boards and say, look, the data shows it now. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, and Molly, last but not least, we'll come to you on this one. Um, and yeah, looking at your sort of remit for Accenture, you can sort of see, you know, how important I suppose this could be if we can get it right. Absolutely. Um, and in terms of the challenges, absolutely echo what Ali and Melissa have said. Um, I think we're seeing that at the global scale. Um, and in terms of the importance, I think the pandemic has really underscored the interconnectedness of everything. Um, we've got cities trying to navigate multiple crises simultaneously. So um, energy crisis, cost of living, obviously the climate crisis and what that means in terms of both mitigating and adapting cities as well. Um, and data is really the fabric that enables that decision making in terms of understanding both the realities and the potentialities as well. Um, we recently conducted a study with nearly 500 infrastructure leaders across the globe um, and found that 96% of them said that their organisations, business and technology strategies were becoming inseparable. So I think decision making and data are essentially becoming one and the same, right? Um, so hugely mm. important. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really interesting point. You know, we sort of we, we sort of want them to be <laughs> indecipherable and one to very much sit alongside the other. Ali, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to flag that something that I think is really interesting about both Molly and Melissa's answers is that this question about the business and who owns it. I mean, one of the things that I think we've seen a change in over five or six years globally is this notion of who owns the problem. You know, there, there was a conversation uh, maybe even a decade ago that all smart city problems were going to be solved by cities by municipalities by government that it was it was somehow their job to come up with platforms or hubs uh, and to to melissa's point some of that has happened in a slightly siloed way you know, there, there has been some siloing of innovation siloing of pilot programs siloing of observations 
but also the very real recognition that your local municipal government does not have the budget to run the data backbone for all of the citizen and consumer enchantment that might might happen in the area. So that question about how you access the data, but the data being tied to business objectives is really interesting. And, and I think when we look at things like net zero, sustainability, resilience that Molly mentioned, this isn't uh, it's not an existential problem. It's not an objective problem that someone else needs to enchant our cities. It's how do we as a business operate with our supply chain, our consumers, the people that we interact with, uh, our customers, the origination of, of, of our product, whatever it might be, in these smart places, where, where assets and people meet, where environment and technology meet, how do, how do we come together? And I think that needs a, a, a lot more work uh, generally in terms of then what do the models look like? You know, circular economy, circular supply chains, all of these have that aspect of this isn't just data overlaying business as usual within cities. There is something more fundamental happening. And we we have seen with the with the pandemic, um, with the current resource scarcity and, and issues, with the financial crises that, that we, we are facing, um, both home and abroad, that we've got to start doing different things. It's not, it's not just about doing things differently. We, we've got to do different things. We've got to move from here faster, harder, um, while taking people with us and while being confident that we're not leaving people behind, um, we're not overlooking opportunities, um, but we are collaborating, cooperating and, and interoperating um, more securely, more quickly uh, and with greater purpose. Yeah, and what, what I would say leading on from that is that, so therefore the missing link out of what we're saying, I would say is outcomes. Um, because um, the other thing that was in the survey um, was showing that the customer outcomes uh, are now aligned with business objectives. Um, and I think that's the thing. So here, that the digital side of it, the data side of it, is just an enabler. And it's not actually an enabler for business objectives. It should be an enabler for the outcomes. Um, so because Ali's brought that up, I'm going to bring it on up early on in this discussion. Because so um, last year, we during COVID, probably brought on by COVID from what Molly was saying, um, we, in the UK, we got together as built environment um, and came up with our vision for the built environment which is saying that the explicit purpose of the built environment is to enable people and nature to flourish together for generations. And I think that's the thing that the missing thing that you're talking about, Ali, is that if everyone is focused on outcomes and they're better outcomes to people and nature, it sort of leads you in a place-based decision-making direction. So, so in our vision, there's a visual in there that's got the four levels of outcomes. So it's got the UN State Development Goals, it's got the national level outcomes, then it's got the community level outcomes and then it's got your actual individual sort of project or program and what we're really advocating is that there's a golden thread between all of them and i think if there is then that means that your business objectives your project objectives whatever it is that you're working on your city objectives all of them be, they're, they're geared towards outcomes and the outcomes are to improve the people and nature and therefore this question about data is all about actually how does the data lead to better decisions leading to the better outcomes Absolutely. And just to build on that, um, uh, Melissa touched earlier on getting the board buy-in that I think one of the challenges we keep coming up against as well is that the financial case is just one part of it, the question. And th this outcome focus, this wider concept of value is a way to really bring along yeah, these more holistic, sustainable outcomes in terms of economic, social, environmental, and seeing citizens, climate and nature as stakeholders in this 
a wider uh, vision. And I, I think the wider bit is really interesting in even where you build a business case that that as we change and, and develop these sharings, as we move away from the silos that Melissa was talking about, look at the wider impact um, that Molly's talking about, focus on outcomes. Um, it's less of the kind of piecemeal early 2000s IT project of, okay, well, if I bring these bits of data together, I can create this app. And then what's the ROI on having created that app or that smart parking solution or the smart lighting solution? And actually looking at the wider outcome, there was a great talk um, recently by the Australian Smart Communities Association, uh, where they talked about delightful insights. So that by, by approaching these things in the right way, by focusing on outcome, you might discover things that you didn't know were interesting, that you didn't know that you could affect. And that again is a fundamental change. I mean, we've seen a lot of, well, our, our assumption is that we can better streamline when lights come on based on environmental conditions or, or you know smart parking will work better for the industry. but it lacks the flexibility of the of the unintended or the undiscovered or that delightful which i'd love the delightful insight of saying actually our communities aren't using our our places the way we thought they would our, our environment isn't responding to the place the way we thought we would this doesn't match our static model that we created or our simulation that we created something different is happening here and then you're able to intervene in real, not necessarily real time, but at right time, you know, based on actual actual intelligence in ways that you wouldn't necessarily have built an ROI around. You wouldn't have sat down and said, oh, you know, we know this is the problem. And therefore, if we develop this app, we can have this outcome. And it's instead saying by looking at that bigger picture, there are still all sorts of wins and, and possibilities uh, available to us. Um, so no, I, I absolutely love that. I think um, we should go to our first audience question before we move any further. Um, we've spoken just then uh, around how how this can kind of be used um, to improve, you know, improve people, improve nature, and how those two things overlap and collide, and how you know we really need to nail those two things and get that right if we have any chance of sort of bringing about the sort of future that we all want to be a part of. Um, so. Molly, you may be best placed to answer this one. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give it to you and then we'll, we'll open it up. Uh, how are vulnerable groups included in improving people and nature? And then how do you define nature in the business case? A very interesting question and something I'm particularly passionate about in that I think in the same way that in any conversation that only so much of it is the words you say, right? And the majority of it is your body language or the way in which you say it, that data is a way to give a voice to those sectors of society that can't necessarily or don't necessarily engage in the conversation directly with City Hall or other players in the local ecosystem. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's vitally important and incredibly exciting. Um, we've been working, well, some of my colleagues in the US have been working with um, a utility over there to understand some of the specific impacts um, of, interventions around disadvantaged communities so looking at what that means in terms of co2 footprint and as we know both at the local and global scale but it's these disadvantaged communities that feel the impacts of the climate crisis most acutely um so yeah i think looking at innovative ways in which we can gather data process that data and yet yeah, really using it to tap into potential blind spots um in our field of vision across the 
citizen and resident community. Mm -hmm. So, um, oh no, please, Melissa, after you. Um, no, I was just going to jump in from our vision point of view, what we meant to, we talked about flourishing uh, of people in nature, um, because uh, another core theme, so I talked about outcomes, that was the first core theme of um, the um, vision, and it, it was also talking about sort of moving from creating the built environment to, to the outcomes from it. The second one is about systems and the fact that we live in a system of systems. Um, and so the nature part of it is recognising that nature is a massive system of systems and then the built environment is a system of systems. And what I mean by that is you've got economic infrastructure, you've got um, uh, social infrastructure. Um, so you've got if you have a hospital then people need to get to the hospital. Um, but then the hospital will be, um, sorry, that's transport. And then, um, but then it will also probably be sitting in some kind of nature. And actually, we know that people heal quicker the more nature there is and all that kind of thing. So, so when we're talking about um, nature, we're, we're really, um, and, and we drew it out. So there was another one that a precursor to this that was only about infrastructure and it was about human flourishing. Because for us, it was so obvious that if nature doesn't flourish, we don't. So we, we always see nature flourishing as part of human flourishing because one dying leads to the other dying. Um, but everyone was really clear when we set up saying, no, you need to absolutely spell it out as well and sort of have nature up there with people. So that was one point. The second point is, is that there's ecosystem services. There's so many things that are going on in the natural world. Um, and there's the dust book to review the economics of biodiversity. Um, there's all different ways we're starting to look at things. And so um, we have to start to see our interventions, our interventions on a larger system of systems. And that system of systems is made up of the economic, the social infrastructure and the nature systems. Um, so that's what we're talking to, talking about when we, what we're sort of referring to, which is about flourishing of, of people and nature in, in our vision. I, I think it's it's really interesting to, to uh, you know, wholeheartedly agreeing with both Melissa and, and Molly, but I think it's interesting to also uh, just pick a couple of examples, separate out the two that vulnerable uh, people in particular um, there are specific activities currently happening in the uk and i'm aware of similar elsewhere about looking at the sharing of data around vulnerable customers with all the correct security processing anonymization and so on because what what was happening is the silos that melissa mentioned up top mean that the information utility company has about the vulnerable people in their area or their catchment uh, that the water company has that the fire brigade brigade has or fire service has that the other blue light services have um, so isn't always aligned, doesn't always overlap, and isn't tied to things like the infrastructure and assets that are around uh, in all cases. We've seen in the UK uh, a demonstrator called Credo that was looking at how you could bring organizations together, um, water companies, power companies, uh, asset owners, so that in the event of flooding, in the event of severe weather, weather events, um, you knew how assets going down would affect the individuals involved. We're seeing similar activities happening um, in and around Newcastle, uh, across the northeast and northwest of the UK, um, in the southeast, but all of them have the same underpinning problem. We need to be able to share data, but we need to be able to share it securely. We need to be able to share it with some degree of right timeness. You know, it's no good doing a reconciliation at the end of the year and saying, oh, we got all the same thing because that there's a there's a huge potential for for problems in there it needs to be shared at selective levels of sharing so you might share some information with another utility company but a completely different let or, or a broader set with with blue light services 
And what does that allow you to do? Well, it allows you to make sure that you're prioritizing customers in the right way, that you're getting to people that have uh, difficulties in whatever form. The, the fire brigade or fire service, depending where you are in the world, is aware of those problems before going out to a fire and discovering that there's, there's an issue. And the same with ambulances. So that aspect of bringing citizens in doesn't require those citizens uh, to, to have additional dashboards or additional places to see. This is about the enchantment of their experience in terms of what's happening uh, and what's going. And on the nature side, I just want to really revisit Melissa's point about outcomes that, you know, I think we have similar conversations about some of these data sharing as we used to do around, well, why should there be a green space here? Why should we worry about uh, the natural environment in our built environments and what are we doing with it? And it's about the focus on the outcome, not the tasks. So, you know, we've seen that one of the reasons for measuring air quality around ports and things like that is a recognition, not just of the need to, to report what you're doing with carbon capture, not just making more efficiency, but so that you can be aware of what's happening with an environment that then impacts the healthcare system. You know, the nature is a system of systems and truthfully, and Molly mentioned this, all of our, our built environment is a systems of system. You know, this is, this is all a thing whereby it is frankly bloody ludicrous to, to be looking at how our health system works, how we travel to it, how we're at work, and not think about the natural environment around it and how that might mitigate problems. Imperial did a study 10 years ago about this, the extreme health benefits that happened if you stood in the middle of Hyde Park in central London versus the edge of Hyde Park in central London, because it's a big enough green space that there is a, there is a measurable, noticeable, impactful difference in air quality. The solution is not, therefore, to build more green parks. It's to say, actually, we, we now know that there is a massive impact to healthcare provision, demand on healthcare services, demand on transportation, but by reducing, you know, by improving air quality or reducing particulates in the air. That, that kind of linkage doesn't require new dashboards. It requires new thinking about where the data sits, what the outcome is you're aiming for, and who influences and benefits from it. Yeah, 100%. I could not agree more. Uh, so, uh, I'm going to call it an, an impassioned plea for action um, on that. And I think it's great. It's, it's great to hear that. Um, I wanted to, to dial back um, slightly. We said right up the top how on all of this, despite the clear kind of benefits that we could see coming forward, we are not quite there and public and private sector aren't necessarily on the same page to move forward with it so it's the classic question when we have a conversation like this how do you do it how do you get there how do we move towards a more common approach a more standardized approach for sharing data between those sorts of organizations without compromising the security of that data without compromising on what the public will see as their privacy and their data security, and also without holding up the process in terms of at that smart city or smart place level, without holding up that decision-making process, because at its best, or depending on how you look at it at its worst, it could, that, those sort of split decision, split second decision-making moments could be the difference between sort of you know carrying on business as usual 
and some kind of utter catastrophe. Um, not to bring the mood down, um, but let's let's open that up. How do we get there? I've put on a headset, so I'm hoping you can hear me better. Absolutely, can that is good, all good. 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 Um, well, I, I might, I'll kick off now then. <laughs> I've just <adjusted laughs> uh, because um, for start, starting on the negative and then hoping to move towards the positive. Um, the negative is that in that that vision that those levels I was describing with the outcomes, I do think the community level one is where you know we've got the least progress. So we don't have the bodies or the processes or the funding in place to make what I would call place-based decisions. Um, but but from a positive that is the whole point of the infrastructure client group so so as i said to you at the beginning you know we're it's a homework sharing club i mean that is literally what it is but when you think about who the members are and the members are the arms length bodies of the department for transport so network rail transport for london east west rail hs2 etc you've got the water utilities in there um you've got um energy so you've got uk power networks and the national grids um you've got nuclear in there um and there's also open reach you've got broadband and uh, ali referenced the climate resilience demonstrator credo that they're, they're all members um, and we actually think that credo came about because of our homework sharing club so it, it does seem to be that if you when you bring these people together and put them in a room what, what Ali was saying before about you can't even begin to imagine the things that come out of it um, that then it is amazing but it's been like a 12-year journey and that 12-year journey has been one of trust so it's been sort of being in the room because he felt like but not not be in the room just in case you know but not i'm not really going to share anything i'll just be there and also only sharing mistakes because saying okay let's just share our mistakes because then um we like then hopefully others won't make them if we share them um to moving to saying actually we could share our best practice and actually if we did this and acted consistently we could actually transform the industry because we've all got the same supplier ecosystems and then realize they need to be sharing with their supplier ecosystems etc so it's so it's been a journey so i don't think it's something that happens overnight but i do think that that the way that we work bringing the chief data officers together bringing the chief let's call them sustainability officers together you know bringing bringing everyone who's interested in delivering differently in, in project 13 together um that that's a start um and in terms of the cyber security bits um we have a, a sort of bit of a mantra in our digital transformation task group so one of them is that you should have a business case for um not sharing not a business case to share so you have to, if you're not going to share something you need to tell us why um, and then the sort of the other half of that is to say that cybersecurity is an enabler, it's not a blocker, and we should see it like that. So credo can only happen because of cybersecurity. So rather than looking at it from the point of view of um, oh well, it's you know there's that security we have to block everything. It's more like no, we have to be sensible. So we need cybersecurity because the things we're dealing with are really you know critical. But it's that the other half of it, the business case for not sharing is um, it's almost a model of just keep asking why. And it's usually somebody who doesn't actually know um, it's not their fault, but they're just like, OK, we'll just block everything because we know this bit needs to be blocked. I'm not quite sure. Whereas if you just keep saying, why can't you? And they say and then you say, oh, why not? You'll get to the bit that maybe can't be shared. And hopefully, you know, we've got CPNI advising us as well. So hopefully we're quite you know, clear on that bit. But um, UK Power Networks just did an open data portal and there was only one data set they found that they couldn't share. Um, and obviously they, they've made all the data safe, et cetera. So I'm not saying they just opened it up. And the same in Credo, they didn't just, you know, open up all the data and give it out. But um, a lot of the project of Credo was how to share data cross sector. Um, so, so I do think those are some of the answers as well as the problem. If I may, 
Um, and Molly, apologies, I may be cutting across you, but um, I think I agree wholeheartedly with, with, with every bit of that. I also think though that there is an aspect here of, of being able to go bottom up. So that trust piece, there is an evolution of trust aspects in this. Um, so a, a parallel I often draw is that when we meet people for the first time, we don't share everything there is to know about us, everything about our thought process, what we believe, where we're at. You have a progressive evolution of trust in the way that you interact and interoperate. So I might share my name up front or where I work. And then over time, as I see that you are using that information, that data in the right way, we progressively share more with each other and reap greater benefits. Uh, and we've seen work that we've done around Portsmouth International Port and so on, that if you can start by saying, well, look, from a technological process, you each own your own data. We're not asking you to put it somewhere else or give up control of it or, or whatever else it might be, but just share a little bit, share the bit that, that you don't think has that much value to you, share the bit that you, know, you are willing to share and you'll rapidly find that you can start bringing those bits of pieces together. And there's not a central organizer bringing it together. You will find and share with others in a network and that network can progressively grow. And we've seen this across the rail industry um, with people like Rolls-Royce Power Systems and Hitachi. We've seen it um, in the Portsmouth International Port with the electricity and the port itself uh, and other suppliers starting to share little bits of information about air quality, about what vessels are in the area and so on, and starting to draw these pieces, which then means you can go further down the line of saying, well, what else can we share? And the secondarily piece is that I just want to agree with, with Melissa. It's one of the questions I can see in the chat here about does the regulation around data create a problem for us? Absolutely not. Um, it is part of uh, the great framework within which we can develop that evolution of trust that exactly as Melissa was saying. But if we're sensible about it, the alternate is that you try and create legislation or contracts for every possible data that you might share, every possible outcome that might happen, and then you're closing it down. We've seen in the real world how we interact with people, and we've seen what we did with the internet in terms of progressively sharing more, building on it, sharing it back, seeing how it works, not just starting sharing everything and, and every bit. Um, and the, the second part, and then I'll shut up, I promise, and, and, let, and let Molly speak. But the second part is that we've got to change how we think about data. The majority of data is not valuable. Like that, that's, my, that's my statement, that one of the greatest misdirects of the last three years or so has been referring to data as the new oil. It isn't. The only similarity with oil is that it, all the difficulty, all the challenge comes with getting access to it. Data is not useful. Insights generated from data are useful. The deltas around data are useful, but that continuous monitoring, you know, is it 32 degrees? Is it 32 degrees? Is it, like that data isn't valuable. And we've got to change, uh, especially in the corporate world, this, this mentality that if I just hang on to it myself behind my walls long enough, it will somehow magically transform into gold and, and I'll, I'll find something I can do with it and recognize that the interaction of data, the interoperability between people, the sharing of it and the insights you can generate is the future, of, future I believe, of commercial business models. So the people that right now today, anywhere, uh, Africa, um, uh, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, North America, we're seeing this starting to change, anywhere that right now you're saying, yeah, but it's my data and I have value in it. I would challenge you exactly as Melissa said and say, are you, or in reality, are you throwing petabytes of it away because you can't figure out what to do with it? If you can start sharing that, start that evolution of trust, you'll develop real business models around the intelligence insights and services you add on to that data, not the data itself. Data, data in and of itself without context is not valuable.
um, yeah, wholeheartedly agree with everything that both Ali and Melissa have raised, um, especially the point from Ali around this being an evolution in a journey. And I don't think there is a one size fits all to this common approach, um, especially as we look at the global scale where you have these differing cultural norms around the trust side of things and um, differing business landscapes, regulatory landscapes, etc. I think it's finding ways that you can build a framework that is flexible enough um, to enable this shared journey towards these collectively defined outcomes. So while we're here, uh, and we are here, um, one of the other questions, which kind of quite neatly ties into this from, from the audience is, you know, the role of public and private sector here. Um, so we kind of said earlier on, uh, Ali, you, you referenced how public authorities and municipalities don't necessarily have the, the budget to, to adopt these sorts of solutions and these sorts of platforms, even if they're willing to generally get on board with the approach. So if we cannot rely on municipalities to leverage the data in the way that they would ultimately like to, but potentially can't because they're restricted by budgets and finance, how do we ensure that the private sector isn't in it purely for themselves, I suppose? Um, and that they, as we've just been discussing, are actually using this, using this data and sharing it in a way that's going to enable broader, broader, broader benefits towards those sorts of shared outcomes. So I'm going to give a, a unusually for me short answer and then defer to the much wiser heads on the call. But the biggest thing is that I think we need to recognize that A, that we're at a fork in the road. All of us on this call have a similar vision. There may, there may be differences in terms of, is it top up, is it bottom down, is it, how standardized is it? All of that is irrelevant. Similar vision in terms of where we're going. We need to recognize that vision is not universal yet. So, so that, that's the first thing is just to flag that, that there is still work to be done in trying to convince everyone, in my opinion, to be on the right side of history. The second thing though, is that we need to accept that the world is changing. I believe, and this is where I'm going to defer to, to Molly and Melissa, that sustainability might just be the killer application for smart cities actually becoming smart. Mm. When smart cities were being talked about in terms of efficiencies, in terms of operations, um, yeah, there was a question mark about why would people do it? Why would you get companies to do it? We are seeing the first generation of people who are sustainability natives as opposed to digital natives. People, consumers, citizens, asking, well, why would you do this in an unsustainable way? Why, why would you not make this sustainable? Um, and that is a fundamentally different piece. Yeah, this, isn't, this isn't corporates being asked to do this for the greater good and CSR initiatives. It's if you don't do it, you will be dead in the water. Like, th this, is my, this is my tuppence that I'm putting on, on uh, and where I'm putting on the roulette table. I believe that we're going to see sustainability be the reason that smart places are pushed forward, the reason that they're there. Tied with vulnerable citizens because climate change, climate resilience means we've got to look after people, completely accept all of that. But those twin pillars are going to be the reason that companies have to engage, not just regulatory things which are coming. And we've seen, especially in, in our experience in Europe and North America, but from a, from a consumer citizen choice, if you are not making sustainable decisions, which means not gathering unnecessary data, which means not storing unnecessary data, which means sharing, cooperating with others, then you are dead in the water and your business model is frankly in deep trouble. Yeah. 
Molly, go ahead. Yeah, I think um, I agree on sustainability being the catalyst and where historically there's been a bit of a, at times, PR problem around IoT or smart technologies as a hammer looking for a nail. But I think we've collectively defined that nail um, and a lot of talk around this twin transition of digital and green. And I think that's especially pertinent in the smart cities context um, as well. Well, I'm glad that Ali went first, actually, because um, I, I was I, I say something very similar. It's slightly different to what I say. Much we find this quite a lot, actually. I mean, and I sort of agree, but in a different way on lots, lots of things, um, because I, I think it's the outcomes, actually. But I was going to say, if you don't become an outcomes-focused um, business, then I think you'll die. And and I thought I was being strong with that, so I'm really glad that Ali went first because we, I also say that if you don't go through a digital transformation, then your organisation will die. And that that's as a person. So when we talk about digital transformation, we mean a, a, a kind of the outcomes level at an organisation level and at the person level. And what I mean by at the person level is what we've been talking about, the kind of each person needs to have the right information at the right time to make the right decisions, leading to those better outcomes. So they need to have that golden thread and those outcomes, they need to have the golden thread through to the UN Sustainable Development Goals so from what they're doing. Um, so, so yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that... Um, that Ali said it first, because I, I think it's the future. I'll also add on to that. So maybe rather than sustainability, I think I would say about circular economy. I think that maybe not the generation after us, but the next generation after that, um, circular economy will be fact. Uh, and I think that even for us, apologies to everyone on this call, I think we're a little bit over the hill and a bit old for it, because it's still quite difficult for us to see how to get there. I think in, in a few years time, it will just be there that the, the world will just be in a circular economy because there's no other future for us um so so yes yeah, so agree agree in a slightly different way with everything that ali said just then yeah i i i mean i don't i don't disagree i and especially on that circular economy piece i think that uh I, well i say this a lot to people that we work with if your business model is unchanged from 2019 where have you been like you know, we've been through a pandemic. There are disruption all over the world. You know, have there been many things in living memory that have affected every community, every country, every person that's listening to this call had an impact from the pandemic? It is changing the way we are living, the way we are working, the way we are interacting with our smart cities, with our smart places, with our communities. It is changing our expectations. It's changing our understanding of resources, of travel, of all sorts of things. If you're working from a 2019 playbook or a 2015 playbook, what are you doing? I mean, like, I mean, just what are you doing? The world is changing. It therefore makes sense that some of these these challenges need to be addressed. And, and if you're not transforming, um, if you're not recognizing that we can't keep consuming um, resources, we can't keep you know, endless consumption uh, without purpose, with profit is the only goal. Um, is not only narrow-minded, it is completely unsustainable. Yeah, I com completely agree. And I think that speaks to sustainability as a as a wider, wider point as well. When uh, too often when we think of sustainability, we think of the environment, but at the same time, you have to consider what that means for society, what that means for business, and having a sustainable outlook and a sustainable approach to all of these things is going to be absolutely, absolutely critical for us to, to enable that circular economy that Melissa, you mentioned as, as undoubtedly the, the future of where we need to need to go. There isn't, like you say, there isn't really 
another approach which is going to take us forward in the way that we need it to um i suppose yeah and actually because i'm actually doing a, a piece on on the sector economy at the moment so we're interviewing experts from across the world and someone just said something that's really stuck with me um because they said that um decarbonization can leave people behind but a circular economy can't so circular economy is about every single person having to make choices and change the way that they live um and so it, it's to people talk about vulnerable people before it's it's kind of circular economy is about every single one of us um so that that quite struck me been thinking about that 100 i think it's great to have a conversation like this where we start with where you start with a conversation about data and then quite quickly move into a conversation where it's about you know equity and inclusivity and diversity and what that means to cities and places and society that we we all would like to see ourselves living in even if it is as you as you sort of quite like rightly said maybe in a couple of generations time um it's uh <laughs> there's there's still hope for my grandkids i guess <laughs> when they come to exist um ali go ahead well i just uh, two, two two quick points the first is um on that couple of generations, the work that Molly and, and Melissa are doing, uh, and obviously their, their companies, organizations, and, and um, the World Economic Forum and so on, is that um, uh, Hannah Webb, I think it is, says that the future doesn't arrive fully formed. Like if we're gonna have that world for people in a generation, two generations time, it starts being built today. Like, you know, the, the, there is no sit back and wait for it to happen. We, we collectively have to start moving towards it. The second piece is that, that for me is the beginnings of what it means to be a smart place uh, and a data and technology enabled smart place. And there's a question that uh, Katerina, I think, mentioned, you know, what is what is smartness? Um, and for me, smartness is, is around this aspect of human and natural flourishing being enabled by our, our, our smart places. And what um, we may have a difference here, but in terms of what I mean by that is that I believe that our environments uh, from a technical perspective, right, technology and data, should function the way they do in the real world. They should enable us to come together, to create, uh, to live, ideally with some, without some of the, the, the real world challenges that we see in terms of exclusion uh, and, um, and issues. But that is one of the big changes that we're seeing. Again, if you look at programs from, from just before the pandemic, actually some of them, there was an expectation that a municipality would set a data and technology objective. They would install the hardware, the data from that hardware would be owned by the people installed it and that they would have a use case built, not outcome based, but use case built solution. And what that is, is a city or place defining how the world lives and how it experiences their place. And that is just utter rubbish because that isn't how our actual world lives. You know, if you if you are a municipality, you don't tell the shops what to sell. You don't tell them how to price it. You don't tell your artists what art to create. You don't tell them where to live, or at least one shouldn't. I recognize that the world's an imperfect place, but one shouldn't, and, and, and the best and most flourishing cities are not. They are melting pots and have always been melting pots of individuals, organizations coming together and creating financial, um, artistic, environmental, and health benefits, not by having a centralized body say, this is how we're gonna do it and this is the roadmap, but by creating a framework within which the interactions between individuals and organizations enables that to flourish and sprout. And that for me, if we can get that right with data and technology and some of the ways we're talking about data interoperating, using contextual data, 
Um, so for those more technically minded semantics and metadata for that stuff to find each other and, and look for it, then we might just be getting towards a smart city. We might just be getting towards a smart place where this stuff can interact, inspire, and we're back to that kind of delightful insights piece for me. If the answer to smart is a parking app and it's decided and determined up front what the outcome from that will be and what it will look like and whatever else, it's neither smart nor interesting as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I, can I just pick up on that? I hope you don't have to get through a list of questions, Luke, because I, <laughs> I just no, want to go pick ahead. up there. No, what, what, um, because, um, but I'm afraid I'm talking about gaps rather than giving answers, because I can see it's coming up in the questions as well, um, because the same way that that I was saying about, um, I think there's a gap at the community level and the outcomes, so we don't have the processes and bodies in place to, to have like community-led decision-making. Um, there's also the feedback, which is I think what you're referring to, um, well, not just the feedback, so at the beginning, the input, and then the feedback. Um, so the built environment must be the only industry, I'm guessing it's the only industry that does not have feedback and then take feedback and then improve its product or service uh, based on the feedback. Any other industry would die if you think about any other industry that said, no, I don't listen, uh, not only do I don't listen to, I don't actually collect, I don't ask them, I don't collect any data, I don't then improve. So if you think about housing, like has anyone ever asked you, you know, whether your house worked after you bought one, whether it, it worked and then improved the next one they're building based on the feedback. So as we know that they get smaller and smaller, you know, but so I'm assuming they've never asked them, have you got enough space? You know, because if they did, then your feedback in any other industry would be that the next thing you built would be better based on the feedback from the last one. Um, so I don't think there are the things in place. So as well as there aren't the things in place to sort of have place-based decision-making yet, I don't think that there are the things in place to allow communities to feed into things that have been created, um, but also to then give feedback on them um the only thing so uh, for the the infrastructure client group has got um, a delivery model so this is now only for building new things so just to say that 99.5 percent of our built environment is already built uh so i'm only talking about adding to it but at least uh the project 13 model does have that built in but that is because it's focused on outcomes so because that what you're um creating is uh the outcome rather than building an asset um, it has sort of built in this thing to get community input to make sure that the outcome is the right outcome and works for everybody. Um, so it's like a small step, but as I say, that's on projects that are using the Project 13 model, and that's for new things that are being built, not for the that's already there. But um, we we really feel there's a massive gap on measuring the performance of infrastructure. So everybody's measuring productivity, and everyone wants to get data, and everyone wants to use digital twins and all the cyber physical infrastructure to help with constructing new things and with doing it more efficiently and more productively. Whereas to say the 99.5% that's already been built, if we were to improve the overall performance of infrastructure, then the, the benefits would be, I can't do the maths on that, I'm not good enough at that, but a lot more, a lot more than just on the new stuff. And I think one thing that keeps coming up as well is this human angle. And I think if we go back to the meaning of the word smart, that it's this thinking, cognitive, intelligence, understanding, and we're not waiting for a new technology or if this technology already exists out there to help us to solve and rise to this collective challenge um but it's thinking as a collective about the the effective and impactful applications of that as well i think that's really interesting because I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts and, and your experience at Accenture because i i try and talk about enchanted places rather than smart places and and for me the enchantment aspect is 
because I don't think it should be people in a lot of cases doing the decision. You know, that uh -huh. one of the additional developments in technology is it's not people sat in front of dashboards saying, "Oh, look, you know, people are going here, or this is happening over there, or the air quality is a bit high. I should adjust something and twiddle, you know, twiddle a virtual knob or use a trackpad or whatever the whatever the piece is." It's about machines talking to machines under rules and with governance and back to you know governance being a positive and so on but but actually leveraging some of this technology to do things that humans for all their brilliance can design and envisage but would have difficulty handling i mean in your report you talk about billions and trillions of, of, of data points and, and so on is it realistic that it's smart because someone at city hall has a, a dashboard and can say okay well i can i can respond to this it should be enchanting because the world should be improved around us mm -hmm. and th there's a book about enchanted objects that talks about the fact that you don't want an app or, or an alexa that tells you um that it's going to rain you kind of want your brolly just to flash at you your, you know, your umbrella or your coat to let you know that you should take it with you because and if our cities could do that if our cities could programmatically respond to us to what was needed to what the human aspect needed if it could bring the human infrastructure natural environment together at that data level but so i'm wondering about the role of people essentially in in kind of our our smart or my, in my my mind enchanted places definitely uh, yeah it's a really interesting point and i think it's people in terms of applying this human understanding and design rather than necessarily humans as the actors as you say and i think that vision of flourishing systems which melissa's raised is that's conjure the vision to me of this enchanted city that you're talking about where these two yeah human and technology are working symbiotically right and to contribute to a greater progressive whatever that might mean good no absolutely and that's that's our kind of final final talking point for the, for the session is how we enable this closer cooperation between what we see in our embedded in our, in our infrastructure in smart cities and smarter places how we enable a close co cooperation between those things and the people that live and exist and play and work in those spaces um and that comes back again to you know how the organizations that are involved in creating this future use that data share it um and develop this ecosystem which is ultimately looking to enable uh, a smarter, but not just smarter, more sustainable, more equitable future for, for our cities and, and for, for these places. And I am questioning whether we should now become enchanted cities world rather than smart, smart cities world. But um, yeah, looking back at that question, how do we begin to enable the, that that closer cooperation between those two aspects something which is you know fundamentally very human um to us and really what makes our cities fun and interactive and interesting places to be as opposed to you know the street furniture the infrastructure these pieces of technology which sit on the side of the road and the side of the street to enable some of those things um bearing in mind it's quite existential question in a way we have five minutes uh so so i'll go first i'll be as brief as i can i think some key words you used there were cooperation we've talked a lot about public and private aspects to 
in my mind, the difference between cooperation and collaboration is that collaboration is, is all agreeing up front what it is we're going to do, what the goal is, where we're going. It's effectively a bit of a hub and spoke model. Right? It's kind of come around a table, set a plan, define it, off you go. For me, part of the evolution of trust is we should do it cooperatively. We each have our own ambitions and goals and so on, and, and shareholders and, and so on are a big part of that for private companies. But we agree in the general direction we're going and the vision that we've set. So I think, I think it is cooperation that's part of it. I think it's also playing into the notion of um, selfish altruism. You know, we've mentioned on this call that companies that don't transform, companies that don't respond are going to die. And as a result, part of that cooperation is the recognition that it may have a benefit on society. It may have a benefit on creating new opportunities, but actually you selfishly need to do it for your company anyway. Uh, and finally, it's a recognition that there are these emergent pieces, you know, both the stick and the carrot. The stick is around things like vulnerability and sustainability reporting, regulation is there in a lot of places and is coming so you know this that's the nascent bit of the circular economy the nascent bit of understanding your supply and demand chain is about to be a regulatory reality for, for a lot of organizations in a lot of places so that that's the stick and the carrot is things like the emergence of data spaces and, and so on of saying to people actually there are ways to share there are ways to interoperate across boundaries and, and there are pathfinders who've done it for you so that, that combination of cooperation, selfish altruism, and, and the fact that, as Molly mentioned, the technology is there, both innovated by organizations like ICG and, and Project 13 and, and the wider getting people around the table, but also at the actual technical level, these abilities for people to come together for assets and people, data to be exchanged for it to, to, to be able to interoperate. The bricks are all there, we just got to build it. Definitely. One thing I would question is whether it's a dichotomy between collaboration and cooperation or whether that's a spectrum. And so you've spoken, um, Ali, about bottom up approaches, but where we are looking at things from a district level, for example, we're doing some work in Singapore to distill um, building a dashboard to help to navigate these top down targets from the likes of the Ministry of National Development and Land Transit Authority triangulating that with district level outcomes and starting off with more of a cooperation by your definition and then looking at how you can involve that into more formalized scalable replicable structures around collaboration yeah i, I can be very brief as well because i i sort of feel like i've i've answered it a little bit because I've, I've sort of said about how i i feel there's a bit of a gap at the community level um but i do think one of the solutions again i've sort of already mentioned is is seeing yourself as an intervention on the wider system so whatever it is that you're doing you're seeing how you fit into with everybody else but i do actually think we're going to need some help so the example that i usually use is of um, a hospital and say that um how do you get a health outcome for a community and I don't think at the moment that there are the bodies and the processes and the funding in place to get a health outcome for a community, because that would involve bringing together, let's say, the GPs, the pharmacies, probably the local charities. Um, it might even be the schools, actually, in terms of healthy living. Um, and then let's say, but, but what's a lot easier to do is to build a hospital. So there's lots of processes in place to do that. So people say, oh, okay, well, we'll build a, a hospital because that will be a health outcome for the community when actually they, maybe they don't need a hospital. And then people will start looking at the construction productivity and how, you know, how well did they build the hospital and how quickly and did they, you know, what was the data in the digital that was used in the modern methods of construction? And you're like, did we actually need the hospital? And I think we're going to need help for that. So there is the government's transforming infrastructure performance roadmaps 2030 and uh, um, focus area two 
is on regenerating places and there are some case studies and examples in there so it kind of gives me hope but i do think that for us to start bringing together the people to to do something like get a health outcome for a community or, or whatever it might be that's just an example um I, i'm not quite sure that i don't think we're there yet and i don't think we're even trying to get there yet is what i'm slightly worried about um but i do think it will need you know interventions that may be kind of like a government type level to, to do that kind of thing 100 i think you can you can kind of see that i think maybe coming down the pipeline a little um unfortunately we do have to wrap it up there um it's been a fascinating session for me um and exactly what we said i think we would do at the start which is have a really nice open and lively conversation around around some of these issues and like we said starting with data moving into how that impacts people's lives at so many different levels across so many different kind of verticals when we look at smart cities and smart places is a fantastic thing to to be able to do um I think we've we've answered some important questions as well around how we can start to build a common approach and put the building blocks in place to enable organizations both public and private to do some of this work have the conversations and ask the right questions of your partners and your collaborators to see what their situation is how it compares to your own um, I think that's a really valuable thing to do and a, and a big takeaway from, from, from our session here today. Um, thanks to, to all of you guys, um, Ali, Melissa, Molly, for, for taking the time out. It's been a brilliant session and apologies for those of you in the audience if we didn't get to your question. What we will do is take them offline and look to see if we can answer some by email. But what I would encourage you to do, as, as always, is connect with our speakers here um through linkedin look to keep the conversation going and uh and see if we can't go further um on some of the progress we've we've made in the last uh hour and one minute which is slightly over um but thank you very much it's been a fantastic session um thanks to, to all of you watching thanks for your support uh to iotics as well um and uh yes yeah, so all of you watching either live or on demand take care i'm sure we'll see you on the next one thank you very much indeed thanks very much all thank you luke and there you have it folks i do hope you've enjoyed today's podcast if you did you can find all of the special guests on linkedin you can find iotics on linkedin and you can find us on twitter it's at iotics underscore news or if you'd like to visit our website, it's iotics.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.